This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, I'm Catherine Bliss, Senior Fellow at the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, and I'm joined today by Ben Hubbard, co-founder and CEO of Parcel, an insurance and data technology company. Now, Parcel, which is sometimes described as an insurtech firm, uses advanced sensors and data analysis to protect goods and reduce risks to shippers and consumers during product transportation. Parcel was founded in 2017 and has been increasing its engagement in support of global health programs since then. In late 2020, as it became clear that COVID-19 was here to stay for a while, Parcel collaborated with a group of insurers to launch the Global Health Risk Facility. With more than $25 million in funding from the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, the facility offers low-cost insurance options for vaccines destined to lower- and lower-middle-income countries. More recently, Parcel joined a group of insurance underwriters and other technology firms to support the work of COVAX, the vaccine pillar of the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator, to protect shipments of COVID-19 vaccines to the countries receiving supplies. Ben Hubbard, welcome to Pandemic Planet. Thank you for having me, Catherine. It's great to be here. So we met back in 2018 in the United Arab Emirates, waiting, I think, to board the 2 a.m. flight out of Abu Dhabi <laughs> as the midterm review. Yeah, it's at least fond, mem- fond memories. <laughs> <laughs> Might have even been 3 a.m. Um, but this was as the, the midterm review of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, was wrapping up. And at that time, Gavi was becoming very focused on reaching remote and hard-to-reach populations with vaccines, but recognized the challenges of protecting those products and getting them safely to populations that needed them. And Parcel, I think, had just joined with the Alliance at that point. And I remember being surprised when you said that you were essentially in the insurance business. And it could have been because it was two in the morning and you know, I, I wasn't <laughs> sure I was hearing right. But you're doing more than assessing risk to products and underwriting policies, right? I mean, you're tracking the transportation of products and gathering data about their condition throughout the journey, maybe starting in Uganda and Senegal. So I just wanted to start by asking you what motivated you and your colleagues to launch Parcel and how did you come to find yourselves focused on the delivery of medical products, particularly vaccines, to some of the world's most challenging settings? Yeah, well, it's a it's a good question. And it uh, it reflects a bit of a, a, a evolution in how we got started and, and where we are today. Our mission at Parcel, we like to say, is to end the days of ship and pray. And I can tell you more about where that comes from. But it's it's really with a purpose to build a world where everyone everywhere can trust the quality of the goods they rely on, whether it's the foods we eat or the medicines we need. And the vision for the company came out of experience, kind of firsthand experience I'd had working and kind of growing up professionally in the kind of global health and development industry. 
and dealing with supply chains uh, in different dimensions, whether it was moving medicines and vaccines or HIV AIDS treatments in the earlier days of, of PEPFAR, uh, working with the Clinton Foundation or at USAID, where I was uh, chief of staff to Raj Shah during the Obama administration. Part of the job of operating those agencies is moving billions of dollars of products from one part of the world to another. And the objective and purpose of that work is so important. And there's often a very strong emergency mindset when you approach those things. The dimension of the quality of the product by the time it gets to the beneficiary was always of, of grave concern, particularly with medicine. And to be honest, wasn't something that you you necessarily talked a lot about publicly because it didn't inspire a lot of confidence to say, hey, yes, we just moved all these treatments and, and reached all these people, but you know, we're a little bit unsure of the quality of the medicines they consumed. And I think there was a view that, look, this, this isn't going to hurt anyone, but certainly there are some questions on the quality because we're moving these products you know, thousands of miles across the world to some of the hardest to reach communities through very weak supply chains. And uh, we just didn't know a lot about quality. And that was the, the dirty little secret was really trying to understand that better. And to this day, I think there's a little bit of sheepishness about talking about you know, what we don't know, and particularly with cold chain products like vaccines. And so by the time I left the administration, I just thought this was a problem that had sort of been around too long and saw all these soaring innovations with the Internet of Things and consumer technology where it just seemed possible to get this data collected at a granular level and use it to just get smarter and avoid losses and make sure we get goods to people that are that are of sound and safe quality. And, you know, the, the, the story has taken some twists and turns, but our thesis then and today is that it's not about selling people sensors or hardware. It's making sense of the data that those devices are collecting and turning that into business value. And insurance is an industry that needs good data and understanding of risk to do its job effectively. And we very quickly saw the potential and the impact of combining a financial product with the data we're collecting to offer a form of protection beyond just visibility, but to actually be there for a partner or customer when things do go wrong, because they do go wrong, um, and be able to serve serve them better. And so that's how we ended up uh, where we are today, which is you know, we're a global insurer of, of cargo, uh, of, of refrigerated cargo, particularly uh, working with Lloyd's of London and underwriters and using that to serve the global health industry. So you have a background working on health issues and on global development issues. But did you ever think that you'd be getting into the nitty gritty on refrigeration and data like Internet data? <laughs> Is that, you know, something new? Well, for me personally, I've never thought I'd be doing any of the jobs I've had. Um, so that's <laughs> that's a, a truism across the board. And for me personally, it's it's a curiosity around certain things and why they are and what we could do better. You know, insurance, interestingly enough, while I was at USAID, I ran something called the Development Credit Authority, which is now part of the Development Finance Corporation, formerly OPIC, which did lending and, and credit guarantees for USAID missions around the world. And credit underwriting is, is very similar to insurance underwriting. And so it's, it actually wasn't a huge departure for me to wrap my head around insurance. And I've always been attracted to industries that 
seemingly on their face are not very sexy. And certainly lending and insurance falls in that bucket. So does supply chain and the nitty gritty of how we get our stuff. And I've always been fascinated by that, whether it's, you know, visiting garment factories in Bangladesh and seeing people make the clothes that we wear in that connection between producers and consumers has just fascinated me. And I think what's interesting about vaccines is actually these are products are going largely from, and perhaps we're now learning problematically, from developed worlds to developing worlds. And then we have a lot of other goods we're coming from developing worlds coming to us. So it's a little bit of a, a reversal of a lot of the trade that we that we see. So earlier this year, Parcel joined with a group of other insurers to launch the Global Health Risk Facility and something called Syndicate 1796. And now I've done a fair amount of work on sort of crime and trafficking issues, or at least the history of criminal enterprise. And <laughs> when I hear the word syndicate, you know, I tend to think of a, a criminal syndicate or something, but pretty sure that's not <laughs> what you're talking about. So can you tell us what is the Global Health Risk Facility? What is Syndicate 1796? And why is it important to bring the public and private sectors together in these kinds of organizations to support the safe delivery of vaccines? Yes. So we did not start a criminal syndicate, um, but we did start a syndicate. And this is a little bit of insurance speak. And I'll just briefly explain, you know, a lot of people think of an insurer and it's a single company and they insure their stuff. And people have a lot of experience with their home and auto insurance. When it comes to commercial insurance, business insurance, it tends to be a lot more complex. And particularly, there's certain types of of or classes of insurance that are considered specialty. So cargo insurance, marine cargo, moving, insuring, you know, goods uh, that are moving through the supply chain in the insurance world is a very complex specialty product. And for very large risks, very large deals, this could be insuring hurricane risk in Florida or, you know, large value pharmaceutical movements uh, on, on ships and trucks. A lot of that ends up in the Lloyd's insurance market, Lloyd's of London. It's also called the London market, but it's actually a marketplace where insurers come together and share risk together. So you might have a, a risk, a pharmaceutical uh, company that's moving goods all around the world. No single insurer wants to take that on themselves. So they will all take a piece of it. They'll take 10% or 20% or 5%. And that slip is filled out till it gets to 100%. And that allows insurance coverage to be offered for really complex, challenging risks and plays a hugely important role in global trade, in our economy, and social protection. And it's something I think is, is poorly understood around the, the impact of insurance. So that's all relevant because guess what's really hard to insure? Vaccines going to low middle income countries or any goods, HIV AIDS treatments, diagnostic kits, just cold chain equipment. This is stuff that insurers tend to avoid. These are markets that don't have vibrant insurance market locally. And so what happens is that basically all of these goods are uninsured as soon as they hit the airport or the port in a country. UNICEF or other global logistics operation will deliver them to the port, they pass them off, and then they're uninsured. And they're in the country's custody, but the countries can't find insurance. And of course, in large, in many cases, donors have financed these products. And so they do spoil. The warehouses burn down. Cold rooms go out. These things happen. Floods happen and losses occur. And there's no one standing there to, to make them whole. There's also none of the, the sort of rigor of the private sector risk management that comes with commercial insurance to make sure that 
we're doing the basic stuff, right? We've got fire extinguishers. We've got some backup generators. We've got some of the basic stuff. These are not huge investments. And so that's been missing from the global health supply chain space. We, prior to COVID, found ourselves working with a couple African countries monitoring their vaccine supply chains for routine immunizations. And we also were working with the London insurance market and saw an opportunity to sell, you know, use what we were learning in the insurance world to help solve this really important insurance protection gap in the global health space. And in the middle of exploring this with insurers and with, with global health institutions like Gavi, the pandemic happened. And so we had a little bit of a running start in terms of socializing what what is a global health supply chain look like, you know, to insurers and helping the global health stakeholders understand how does insurance work. And, you know, I think people really came together in an exciting way. We basically have a, a syndicate without getting into the boring details. But the, the, the takeaway is that we have a dozen global insurers and reinsurers who have come together to make insurance capacity available for global health products being distributed to LMICs. And obviously COVID is a pressing demand, but this is a problem across the board for all of these products uh, and just healthcare delivery in general in, in developing countries. And so this is really the, the place to go to help fill that gap. And we're really excited. It includes insurers from every continent of the world. It's a really global initiative and a lot of it's being enabled by Parcel's ability to collect better data and understand that risk better to get the insurers comfortable with with taking the risk. And 1796 is is not like a lucky number. What does that refer to in in terms of the syndicate? Yeah, so I mentioned there's a there's a dozen or so insurers. One of the things that's really special about this initiative is the public private risk sharing. So a syndicate is another name for an insurer that's operating at Lloyd's. So you can think of a syndicate as the parcel insurance vehicle, and it's backed by capital from the U.S. Development Finance Corporation, and it's taking 50% of the risk on all of these distributions. So what does that mean? I'm a company. I'm distributing diagnostic kits you know, to dozens of countries around the world. We're going to write an insurance policy for them, and 50% of that risk is going to be taken by parcel through our syndicate, 1796. And that is in turn supported by the USDFC. And that's public-private risk sharing. And it's basic. It's 50-50. So private sector, public sector, equal skin in the game. It's commercial. And this is what the U.S. government has actually done very effectively through its credit guarantee programs, Department of Agriculture, USAID, DFC. And we're just bringing that model to insurance and using insurance kind of vehicles to, to do it. Different, different lingo, same concept. So the name 1796, you have to have four numbers associated with your syndicate. <laughs> so we thought, well, what four numbers? And 0019 for COVID-19 was taken, but 1796 was not. And that is the year that Edward Jenner, the British physician, began experimenting with what became the smallpox vaccine, which is still to this day the only vaccine that's eradicated a disease. So that's our inspiration in, in doing our small part in that effort. So... So much of the current discussion about global distribution of COVID-19 vaccines really focuses on supply, production of doses, sale of doses, but also access to doses. And increasingly here in the United States and around the world, fostering demand for doses, confidence in those vaccines. But supply and demand are really only as good as the way in which the supplies get delivered to the people who want and need them. 
And of course, several of the new COVID-19 vaccines, the mRNA ones in particular, are temperature sensitive and have to be kept at stable, fairly cold temperatures, right? Not too warm, not too cold. And I think I saw something that I think not about COVID-19 vaccines, but vaccines in general, like something like 40% are actually like ruined by the time they reach lower and middle income countries because they've been kept at, at too cold or too warm a temperature. So as you work with this collaboration of insurers and assessing risks to the COVID-19 vaccines, what are you learning are really the greatest challenges in their journey from the plant to the airport and then to trucks, to warehouses, and then finally to those clinics where they'll be put in people's arms? Yeah. So we have supply issues, certainly, and we read about those every day. And worth reiterating that we've only vaccinated 1.1% of people in low-income countries but then there is the challenge of distributing those vaccines. And I think we're, we, we did a pretty good job here in the United States. And I think a lot of the media attention has moved on from the actual supply chain, cold chain, it's what we call it, cold chain challenges of delivery. And if, if you remember reading newspapers or watching the news last, late last fall in December, it was all the, the cold chain, which no one had ever heard of, what is the cold chain, was front page news. And people were freaked out. How are we going to deliver these ultra-cold vaccines? And we largely did a pretty good job. I think, you know, we did a good job here in the United States. It's just a different challenge in these developing countries because they don't have, and this is just a documented proof statement, they just don't have the refrigeration technology that we have here to be able to distribute vaccines as effectively and certainly ultra-cold chain vaccines. It doesn't mean we can't do it. And so it's not a sort of fatalistic, it's, it's all going to go horribly wrong. It's just that it's a lot harder. And we need to put an equal amount of tension on, as I said in the beginning, right, the quality of these supply chains. And now, how are we just going to get them there? But how are we going to get them out and make sure that they're potent by the time people get those vaccines? And there is a real risk of vaccine spoiling and not knowing it and inoculating people and they're not getting the, the um, immunization effect. So what happens now is vaccines are dispatched from manufacturer. The logistics of getting it to a country, for the most part, almost across the board now, is controlled by UNICEF Supply Division. They arrange getting the vaccines to the recipient country's airport. They are transferred and dropped off at the airport. And then it's up to the countries to distribute them, obviously with you know varying levels of assistance from, from donors and other institutions. They'll then go to a national medical store. With COVID, there'll probably be a lot more large vaccine campaigns, you know, large vaccination sites like we had here. But there'll also be some distribution to regional sites, to districts, and then down to facilities, and then really down to last mile outreach campaigns. And those will pick up, I think, as we get to the harder to reach populations. Each level that you move down in that system, the, the, the threat to vaccines increases in terms of breaks in the cold chain. Uh, time is like it's a race against time. We, you know, we have lots of data on these particular supply chains now. You know, we know that the faster it's a little bit common sense, but the faster you move the vaccine, it dramatically lowers the risk of having temperature excursions, particularly in that last mile. So once it hits a district, the amount of time it's sitting at a district facility uh, really matters just because that's where you tend to see the weaker equipment. 
And so you see varying levels of refrigeration technology. Gavi uh, and others have put real resources into upgrading a lot of that cold chain equipment, but the money's been slow to move. And so I don't think it's had the dramatic effect yet. There'll be a lot more resources, but I think even, you know, getting that equipment into market, distributed, trained, maintained is a challenge. What we've been able to do, so our sensors sit in those refrigerators, they sit in the cold room, they're communicating back to ministry officials about how their cold chain is doing. They can log in and look at a particular facility in their country and see how it's doing. They're getting alerts about it, but it allows them to understand where their problems are and then where to direct that investment. Where do you send that new cold chain equipment? We can even now predict which equipment is likely to fail based on what we're seeing and monitoring. And, you know, that kind of data just just hasn't existed. We talk about data dark zones. And this is true. Not This is a global problem. Uh, Fortune 500 companies have these data dark zones. And part of what we're doing is just kind of turning the lights on in these supply chains so people can see them for the first time across the country and then take action to remediate and improve and one of the most hardening things we've had is a lot of what we do is is at the, on the mobile app. So healthcare workers have gone from sort of logging temperature on a piece of paper twice a day to digitally tracking their refrigerator. And they can make notes and send information back to the Ministry of Health and actually be really empowered to make improvements. And it digitizes the process, so it saves them a ton of time. And so it's become a real tool for frontline health personnel in terms of simplifying their day-to-day so they can do the more important work, which is not, you know, looking at the refrigerator. So, you know, this raises an interesting question. You know, there's been some recent media coverage of the issue of counterfeit COVID-19 vaccines, but I understand Interpol has also issued a global warning about organized crime and even the potential for cyber attacks, like data tampering and, you know, hacking the information. With all this use of Bluetooth, uh, you know, sensors that, that communicate with the ministry and the digitization of this data. Are these issues that you're tracking and what kind of trends are you seeing? What are your greatest concerns in, in this kind of cyber area? Yeah, I mean, all of those are a concern and they're real risks. I think the, di- the digitization of everything uh, does, you know, leave things vulnerable. We, as, as a company, Parcel, have put a huge amount of investment in encrypting everything end to end from the device to the cloud and have a really secure system, much more secure than any of the other technology that's out there, frankly. But you have to be on on guard. In terms of early on in the pandemic, I think you remember that some Hayer, uh, which is a big man- Chinese manufacturer of refrigerators, was hacked. And so there's some concern about could someone hack into these refrigerators? More and more of them are connected and, and mess with things. We haven't seen that actually happen and hope it doesn't. Risk of theft is interesting because that was never really across the board for the most part, except for maybe some malaria drugs. We weren't really dealing with criminal syndicates trying to steal global health commodities financed by donors. No one was stealing routine immunizations. With COVID, yeah, there is a secondary market. And I haven't tracked the latest, but you're seeing some activity. I don't think we've seen any sort of headline grabbing heists But as this global effort moves to developing countries, you know, they are going to be more vulnerable. And if you're if you're looking to steal vaccines, that's the likely place you're going to start doing it. So we're not out of the woods by any means. And certainly, as we think about the risk from an insurance standpoint, it's not just temperature spoilage, right? It is 
theft. And it is these other risks, these other perils, you would say, in insurance, fire, floods, all of those weigh on the risk. And and no one knows the risk. That's that's truly the case. <laughs> uh, it's all kind of conjecture, which is why we've really worked hard to put protection in place. That's usually when you want to insure things is when you don't actually know what your risk is and what you're walking into. So the next few years are likely to continue to be very busy on the vaccine front, both with COVID-19 vaccines as they continue to roll out and as countries try to catch up with routine immunizations and continue to provide vaccines to, to adults and to existing cohorts as well. You know, at the same time, we know that health systems will be working to catch up with tests and services that people might have missed during lockdowns and perhaps increased demand for all these kinds of supplies, diagnostic uh, agents, vaccines, and, and other kinds of supplies that will have to be transported and insured. And so I just wanted to ask if there are technical innovations on the horizon that, that you're looking at, that you're excited about, and to ask what you see as the kind of potential for increasing the engagement of a new generation of data scientists and entrepreneurs in this area, particularly from the lower and lower middle income countries that, that you're focused on. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I'm most excited to see, frankly, has nothing to do with technology. And it's just a lot of our work focuses on Africa, so I'll just kind of focus there. But it's a lot of the African countries stepping up and taking control of this themselves and less of a a waiting around for Geneva-based institutions to come in and, and do things. And frankly, a real frustration with the speed of those institutions to respond. And, you know, while it's frustrating, I think it's actually been a good push for the AU has really put together a significant effort here. So that sort of stepping up is exciting and it transcends all the way through, which is that you have technologists and new problem solvers and talent in these countries that can solve these problems and own it in a way, the good and the bad, right, of of the kind of donor-dominated international development industry. So I've just seen throughout my having been in this this world for most of my career, there's definitely a real power shift that I think is very positive. The other one is that there is a new, I'd say, class of emerging technology companies and new entrants into this space that aren't really happy to accept the kind of rules of the game in terms of the grant-making, contracting of USAID and the other big institutions Parcel being one of them, and are really focused on customer problems, user feedback, and getting actual on the ground customer demand and winning on the merits versus sort of being really good at chasing contracts. So there's a zip line, obviously, you know, flying vaccines in the sky. There's some other interesting drone efforts, Zenesis and Frame using data in new ways. It's really inspiring to see our sort of peer companies stepping up. Almost all those companies have real presence on the ground in these markets. To me, that's sort of changing changing the game in a positive way. It's much less top-down. It's so much more user-focused. And ultimately, that's how we serve these customers in these markets. You know, I, I really do believe in kind of consumer choice and free markets and I think we're we're going to see a lot more of that over the next decade is is a bit of a shift of the the kind of dynamics here. And I, I think that might be rough on the edges as we go, but ultimately is a really positive shift. Well, Ben Hubbard, thanks very much for speaking with me today. 
and good luck to you and Parcel with your current projects and global engagement in the year ahead. It's great to speak with you, Catherine. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 